That's okay. We understand. It's not like Jesus died for you or anything. All right. So we are uh, in First Timothy chapter five. As, uh, Landon gave us a good uh, head start. I always like to just backtrack, give us give us a little bit of context. Um, so you know, chapter one, uh, we saw Paul basically told Timothy, hey, I know you're having some troubles in the church. Uh, just remember, don't get distracted. You know, keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and then he kind of turned his attention to some of the folks in the church in chapters 2 and 3. You know, he said, you, you, you guys should be known for, for prayer uh, and hospitality and honoring authority, not for arguments and, and uh, you know, arguing about the uh, conspiracy theories and things like that. Then in chapter 4, the last couple weeks, he he turned his attention to what the ministers in the church um, should be like, you know, that they should focus on teaching. Uh, That that, you know, that's, as weird as it may seem, that's one of the things that sometimes gets pushed to the back burner because there's so many activities and, you know, outreaches and raffles and and Awana meetings, or what, you know, all that stuff, uh, and sometimes teaching takes a back seat because that has to always stay primary. It has to be the, the focus uh, and reminding us of you know of the truth, not neglecting our we're not to neglect our own growth as we're trying to help others grow. And so now we get into chapter five, and he's going to talk about how to minister to the people in the church. And so we'll, we'll read the first couple verses here. First Timothy 5, verse 1 says, um, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Elena did a good job with this text already. But, there, you know, we, we're calling this series, um, what is it, Leadership 101. So we're trying to find what are some of the leadership principles in here. So not just how does it apply to church, but how does it apply to the workplace and, and in your family. And, and there's a good general principle there right off the bat, that don't be harsh with people, especially those who have a little seniority. And sometimes, if you've ever been seen this in the workplace, you get that new uh, supervisor, that new boss that wants to make an impression and, and you know, they, they get a little overzealous. And then there's the one old-timer in the shop that has been there since they built built the place, you know, that will put him in his place. Um, so, you know, don't go after that guy. You, you've got other battles that you can fight. Um, but especially, just don't be harsh about them. One thing I've, I've found, for me, is the older I get, the less I know. 20 years ago, I knew a lot. And I love to let people know. And, you know, as time goes by, I'm, I, I'm less and less impressed with myself, you know. And, uh, you know, so you younger folks, be careful about uh, how you correct someone older than you. They might know a thing or two. But quite, uh, quite simply, rebuking, though, is, is confronting someone about their sin. That's what a rebuke should be. And pointing it out and then bringing correction. You know, helping them correct it, not just pointing it out. 
lots of us are good at pointing out someone's sin, but helping them correct it is, a, is another issue. And that is part of a pastor's job or a minister's job. It's really part of every Christian's job, but is to bring rebuke where it's needed. And that doesn't always make you the most popular person in the church, uh, but it's necessary. Jesus said in Luke 17, he says, in verse 3, he says, if your brother sins, what? Rebuke him. Right? If Jesus says it, it must be a thing you should do. Right? Uh, Paul told Timothy in, uh, in another letter that we'll, we'll actually be covering here before too long, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word, right? That's the, the main thing, the priority. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, those parents in the room, you know that you sometimes rebuke your kids without great patience and instruction, right? And usually that's, nobody wins, you know, in that situation. But yeah, on that list, right, he, he said, yes, you, you need to rebuke. And like Landon said, that means, it's to, it literally means to beat upon, right, to chastise. It's, it's, you're, you're kind of beating somebody up. But he also said you need to exhort. And that word, it's, it's, we see it all through the New Testament, it's parakaleo, and it's, it's to call to your to your side, to comfort, uh, basically bring someone under your arm. And you just come here, let me put my arm around you, bring me close. And I want to speak encouraging, life-giving words into you. And so I would propose this, that you're thinking about rebuking someone. Don't do it if you're not also in a position to also exhort them. Now, I'm not saying, you know, you don't call a spade a spade. But if you feel like it's your place to, to pull someone aside personally and tell them what they're doing wrong, don't do it if you're not ready to also put your arm around them and help them to do what's right. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says this. It says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I've been hurt the most by the people that are closest to me, but I've also, those people have also helped me grow the most. When it's done in love, that's, that's what matters. So Paul, he's saying, Timothy, uh, when, not if, but when you rebuke people, don't beat up on them. Uh, don't pound on them. Love them. Show them respect. You know, and, and if, if they're older, treat them like it's your dad. If they're younger, it's like your, your brother. If they're an older woman, it's like you're talking to your mother or, or your sister. And with the ladies, uh, he adds this little thing at the end. He says, in all purity. Now, be careful how you deal with uh, people of the opposite sex, especially. Um, that can be a, a slippery slope. Then he turns his attention, though, to the widows. And this is a, he gets pretty detailed, pretty lengthy section. Um, and so just, you know, let's put our minds in this 
this first century world. It was really difficult for a woman to uh, to be gainfully employed right? um, in that era of history, especially. And by and large, it was a father or a husband that provided financially for a woman. Now there were exceptions. There were, you know, there were jobs that women could do, but not many. And so if a woman's husband died, there was no retirement fund. Uh, they didn't have really a welfare system. There was no life insurance um, to depend on. There was no social security, just like there won't be here soon. Um, and so she was, she'd be forced to you know, basically immediately find some sort of work, some sort of job, which was nearly impossible. Or she'd have to move back in with family or be supported by her own children uh, until she married again. Of course, there were, like any uh, situation, there are some women who none of those things were an option, right? There's no father to move back in with. There's no grown children to take care of them. Uh, what are they to do? So the early church, they knew the importance of ministering in a Christ-like way to people in those situations. Uh, the, you know, to give them the love and support that, that they need. And they established pretty, pretty quickly after the church first launches and, and becomes a thing, they establish uh, a, a way to financially and practically support widows uh, and orphans. Right away they see that this is a need that's going to need that. In Acts chapter 6, uh, we read that they, um, and this is just, you know, weeks into the existence of the church, they already had a program for daily distribution of food from the, um, that, you know, to the widows. And then there's a the whole drama about, you know, how it's getting handled, and we end up getting deacons out of that whole situation. But, but um but the church, we see right away, they maintained this list of widows that they needed to take care of. James, in his letter, he says that, that one of the main byproducts of uh, true and undefiled religion is that you care for widows and orphans. So how you treat people with uh, less than you is a huge indication of where you're at. Seriously. Uh, I know I judge people pretty harshly on how they treat people that, you know, are, have less than them, right? How do you treat your waitress at the restaurant? Now, drive through workers, that doesn't count. It's a whole other story. But no, how, you know, how do you treat animals? How do you treat, you know, people or things with less power than you? Good indication of what's going on in your heart. So anyway, the church early on, one of the first programs that the church starts is to take care of widows. And, you know, when you start getting into the administration of, of any church funds, right, because the, the food, the money had to come from somewhere, uh, you have to have some sort of standard for how that gets needed out and who, who benefits. Otherwise, the church will pretty quickly go broke. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy is going to give him some standards, right? Some, 
here's some qualifications that a woman must meet in order to be put on this specific list. And we'll get into uh, what that is all about. But when I was studying this, I, I couldn't help but think of, you know, we, over the years, um, we, of course, have been, in, uh, you know, helped people in all sorts of different situations. And some people have different ideas of what the church is for. Um, you know, before uh, before this nation had a uh, a system in place to help people, the church was the only place to go for help. You know? And and in some ways, it still can be that in people's lives. But you know, we uh, we we tried to get better over the years of helping people find other resources to you know to help them along the way. But because we can't help everyone much as we'd like to. And, of course, you always get the situation where, you know, there are some people that take advantage. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've had people come in wanting help with, you know, whatever bill, uh, because they have no money, while they have a carton of cigarettes under their arm, you know. And I'm like, that, I saw, I know how much those cost, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, uh, I I'll never forget one time uh, someone called wanting help with some things. And we did help them with a few things. But then uh, I, just, I got an earful, got chewed out by this lady because I wouldn't also pay for flea treatment for her cat. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, I'm sorry, we don't have a cat flea treatment fund at the church, you know. <laughs> But anyway, uh, so we might want to define widows, right, as any woman who has lost her husband. Right? That's, that's a, look it up in the dictionary, that's going to be close enough. Uh, but that's not going to be Paul's definition here. He's going to have a much narrower definition of who the church should be helping in this specific program. So 1 Timothy 5, verse 3, says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. And so he's basically giving them this title, a widow indeed. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make, uh, to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So if this woman, if her, if her husband dies, but she has other relatives, whether they're children or grandchildren, then it's only right and proper, he says, for that family to take care of this woman and her needs. And so God thinks that the family should take care of its own needs when possible. And that can be difficult, especially if you have a strained relationship with family. Sometimes it's those situations that help heal those, those hurts, right? Because we finally are going to have the conversation because now I'm here at the bedside and we've, you know, we've got to deal with it. Um, and he says that, you know, they should first show piety at home, right? This, this is the first place for them to, to practice what they preach, basically. And I'm sure you've seen this probably in your own life, that it's, it's easier to be nice to people you barely know than it is, you know, you always hurt those that you love, right? Uh, I know we, you know, 
we've done it at our house where we'll be arguing and, you know, harsh tones and the phone rings and we're like, hey, how are you? You know, you flip that switch somehow. Um, you know, uh, I don't know how many times I've been yelling at the kids on the way to church. You know, Get out here so we can go learn about Jesus. So he says, the first place that you practice this stuff is with your own family. Verse 5, he says, now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So she's not putting her hopes on finding another man. Uh, she's trusting God, right? She's, she's put her hopes on him. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So the church's welfare system was never meant to just make it so someone could, you know, live however they want, live the good life, and, and we'll pay your bills. Uh, but he, he says, you know, this older woman, if she's just living for pleasure, is basically dead while she lives. If all you're living for is the pleasure you might receive in this life, you're, you're heading toward a dead end. Everything degrades. Everything, everything breaks down. Everything is temporary. And there's nothing sadder than I think than an older person still chasing pleasure rather than deeper things. Verse seven, he says, "Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach." But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So he makes it pretty clear that, you know, this matters. If you don't take care of your family, it's a big deal. Right? It's, it's your responsibility to take care of your family, right? your children, and your parents and grandparents. And no matter how ugly that may look. And so, you, just a word to you folks that maybe, you know, you're not in a place right now where you need to take care of an elder you know, uh, family member, but you've got little family members. Uh, I just want to caution you that you don't depend solely on the church to teach your toddlers about Jesus or your teenagers about faith. Uh, we're here to help. But they'll, they'll learn it first and foremost at home by watching you. Verse 9, he says, A widow is to be put on the list. You notice he's mentioned this list a couple times. If she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, and that sounds like, uh, wow, he's really, you know, putting them in a low position. But all that really means is, you know, it's seeing to practical needs. It was something that, after, you know, you, you walked everywhere you went in the ancient world. You get there, your feet are covered in dust. And, and the, one of the most refreshing things, the most hospitable things you could do is help that person, you know, clean their feet off and then come in here and sit down and, and relax. Um, if she has assisted those in distress and if, uh, she has devoted herself to every good work. What he's getting at, and you may not catch it at first, is the church would essentially 
hire these older women to minister in and around the church. And they, in exchange, they basically made a pledge. They would give themselves to prayer and hospitality and every good work. Everything that needed done, they made sure it got done. And, you know, who better, right? Who better to see to the needs than, you know, nice grandmas, you know? Um, now we, we, you know, we, we hire you know, young guys like Landon, and, uh, which we appreciate all of our, our young, young people, but, uh, they don't know as much as, you know, you seasoned saints, you know, not you personally, hey, Landon knows a bunch of stuff, but no, I think we could all learn a thing or two from, uh, from older widows and shit, but so this is, so he's not just talking about making sure they have a meal, right, because that's something you should do for everyone. He's talking about there's a list of people that we're going to support financially completely. And to do that, they're going to basically take this pledge. And, and in some ways, this is how the Catholic Church got some of the ideas for you know, nuns and things like that. Um, but so they would give themselves over to prayer and hospitality and every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. Uh, for when they feel sensual desires... In disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. So they've pledged themselves to just, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, and then now I've kind of changed my mind, and, um, which, you know, that's fine, go get married, but, you, you know, you should always let your yes be yes and your no be no, and so be careful. The Bible cautions you about making promises and vows and pledges, you know, really, really think those things through. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. So many jokes in so little time. Now, uh, you know, we've, you've probably known someone in your life who maybe was either widowed or maybe they went through a divorce. And that first six months or so, or a year or so after the divorce, they're hard to be around. They need something to, you know, to do with themselves, because otherwise they just focus on all the wrong things. The old expression is, what is it, the idle hands are the uh, devil's workshop? Or, yeah. Um, Paul's concern is that these younger widows, they're going to be tempted uh, and just get themselves into trouble because of their idleness. Because they have a little more energy, right, than, than the older widows, and so they have a little more energy, a little more time on their hands, and, and it leads to trouble. Now, it's not just young widows that have trouble with idleness. We can all get in trouble from that. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 3 says this. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live, what? Idle lives. And don't follow the tradition they receive from us. There's a high importance placed in the Bible on working hard and providing. And, you know, uh, not being a loaf. 
Uh, don't follow the tradition they received from us. Verse 7, For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Uh, if you work hard, you're too tired to gossip. They've done uh, there's study after study about, you know, when it comes to depression and anxiety and all these things that, you know, there are medications that help, and but the, the most effective one is exercise. Um, I talked about this before on Wednesday night where there was, uh, when the war broke out in Spain, you know, 100 years ago, uh, the, their mental hospitals were overwhelmed before the war with people with all these different depression and anxiety disorders, but as soon as the war started, they emptied out because everyone now had something bigger to, to do with their time. I'm not saying if you have depression or anxiety that, you know, you just exercise more and it goes away. You know, those are very real things. But uh, many of our problems come from having too much time to think about our problems. First Timothy 5, verse 14 says, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Uh, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So, we have to have boundaries. You only have so much time and so many resources. That's true in your life, and that's true for the church. Um, I'm reminded of uh, a message I heard uh, Andy Stanley preach one time. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10 says this. It says, Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. He says, look, I know that it can wear you out. It can wear on you helping people. Maybe you have, maybe you're that person in your family that all your other family comes to, right? You're their problem solver. And you can only fix so many things. You can't do it all. You can't fix it all. But he, Paul says, don't allow that to make you just disengage and not do anything. Don't lose heart. And so, 
this, the message I heard Andy Stanley preach, I, he said something I thought was very profound. He said, the message here in Galatians, the message of the Bible, is to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Because we get it kind of mixed up, as even as kids, right? You remember when you would ask, uh, you know, can I, whatever, can I have a popsicle? And, and mom says, well, if I let you have one, I have to let everybody have one. And I remember as a kid, I was like, no, you don't. It can just be between me and you. You know, but we're, we're raised to always think about what's fair. And the world is not fair. Life isn't fair. Just because you can't do it for everyone doesn't mean you can't do it for that one right in front of you. Right? I can't feed the world, but I, I can feed you. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So, there's our leadership principle this week is uh, you have to have boundaries. Right? You have to have uh, boundaries in your life, but don't let those boundaries keep you from from still being a help to someone. Uh, and don't lose hope. You got this. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you again this evening that you gave us another opportunity to study your word. And as we're as we're trying to um, discern the message that you you gave to Timothy through through Paul. We know that so many of those things still hold true today. When we, when we have too much time on our hands, we tend to spend it poorly. So God, make us efficient. Help us to see the, the opportunities that we have to help. When things seem hopeless, Lord, show us the one that we can help. Show us the one thing that we can do to be closer to you. Lord, we pray your blessing on our lives, on this church, on our world. And Jesus, we pray that you come and come quickly. And everyone said.